I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. If you've been enjoying the American Theatre Artists Online podcast, I urge you to consider donating to help the artists who produce the theatre that we all love so much. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many performers, designers, directors, choreographers, stage crew, and theater administration staff are either without a job or in peril of losing their jobs. The Actors Fund provides assistance to artists to cover basic living expenses, such as food, essential medications, utilities, and more. If you love and enjoy theater, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. career that has encompassed TV, film, stage, and concert work around the globe, Betty Buckley is probably best known as the quintessential musical theater actress. Having won a Tony Award for her performance as Grizabella in Cats, singing the famous tune Memory, and a Tony nomination for Triumph of Love. She recently completed headlining the national tour of the new Broadway production of Hello, Dolly!, and received an Olivier Award nomination for her critically acclaimed interpretation of Norma Desmond in the London production of Sunset Boulevard, which she repeated to more rave reviews on Broadway. Her other Broadway credits include 1776, Pippin, Song and Dance, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and Carrie. And she has appeared multiple times off-Broadway and at various regional theaters and concert halls across the country. For over 40 years, Ms. Buckley has been a teacher of scene study and song interpretation, giving workshops in Manhattan and at various universities and performing arts conservatories around the country. She is now offering her master class online, enabling actors and singers the opportunity to work with her from anywhere in the world. Hi, Betty. Hi, Seven. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being on American Theatre Artists Online. We're so thrilled to have you on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. How are things in Texas? Oh, it's a beautiful spring day. I'm really excited oh, that good. spring is here. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You know, um, we uh, some of us that were worried about Texas there a couple of weeks ago with everything that was going on um, with the storm. And I'm glad to hear that you're doing okay. Yeah, it's been crazy from time to time but right now it's bliss it's uh, the spring in texas is very short it's like there's it's perfect for this very brief time and then fall is perfect and then summer hits but both of those perfect moments last a very short window and then 
summer is like hard to get through and then winter you know these days is really strange sure. so yeah, yeah i'm 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 excited to be here in these two perfect moments spring and fall <laughs> well we're glad that you were able to take some of that time for us so thank you um so you know i while we're talking about all of that and what a strange year it's been uh can you talk to us a bit about um the quarantine time how you're holding up and how's everything going i mean you've been you've been working so hard on your online classes and we're going to talk about that in a second but tell us a bit about you know how you've been during this this tough year for all of us well it's uh it's yeah it's been really bewildering hasn't it it's just uh so weird uh, but i've been very blessed to live in this ranch to have space and you know sky and trees and grass and um so i haven't felt um you know, it hasn't been that, that's helped relieve the burden, so to speak. And I'm incredibly grateful that the T. Schreiber studio wanted me to teach. Uh, They, you know, my friend Sally Dunn, who is the manager of the studio, I've been teaching for them for a number of years. In fact, Terry Schreiber was the first person that said he thought I would be a good teacher when I, way back when, some 46 years, 47 years ago and so I you know normally would teach at their studio in person um, five-day workshops like maybe if I was lucky four times a year but sometimes three times a year so they said you know let's start doing a zoom class so I started teaching last April um, three times a week basically and there's a, a group of students that have stuck with the classes and mm. it's been a real respite for us to get together you know in uh, once a week each class meets once a week it's and so there's two alumni classes and one uh first timers to my uh workshops so um the, seeing those people once a week has mm. been a real bright light through all of this there's been a real continuity and a bond a kinship um, of a group of really talented people who love music and storytelling as much as i do and and, and are willing and want to hear what i have to say about it and how to assist them in their growth as artists and they've they've em- at first, I had my own skepticism about how Zoom would work because I, I had only taught, you know, in the same physical space with people. And I, I was really surprised that it really does work. Um, all of these people that have stuck with me um, through the whole pandemic have improved so dramatically. It's been really exciting to, to see, to witness, so much so that we put together a virtual concert in December to benefit uh, Broadway Cares, Equity Fights, AIDS, and the T. Schreiber Studio. And we raised a lot of money. I was really excited about that. And their work was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> my uh, One of my students, a, a really talented actor from L.A. named Scott, uh, Victor Nelson, he was like so funny at the end of that. He goes, gosh, Betty, we got a class two for one, you know, one in film acting and the other in, <laughs> in storytelling and in, in music and well, acting. Know, you know. Well, you know about so that, all, was, that was pretty cool. It was yeah. nice. Well, you know about all those things, right? Because I mean, if you start to take a moment, you know, I was looking back on, on your career so far uh, and all the things that you've done. I mean, 16 solo albums, 
Uh, let's talk about acting on camera. Eight, 18, 18. 18. 18. I got it wrong. 18. Two more yeah. probably in the time since I looked. You've recorded. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which it's, it's amazing. I mean, that's more than any, any artist I know of, of that who does all the other things you also do. Like, um, I remember you from television, Eight is Enough, as Abby. That was part of my uh, growing up. Um, and then I also, Oz... Pretty Little Liars. It's just a small screen. And then, of course, your film career. So, I mean, obviously, you, you bring the film career in with everything that you're teaching, I'm sure. So your friend saying that it's a double class uh, is absolutely right. Uh, Carrie with Brian De Palma. Tender Mercies with Bruce Beresford. These are just my memories. And, oh, my gosh, so many wonderful ones over you. Thank you. A beautiful song. And then my favorite, what's been happening lately for you um, with M. Night Shyamalan on The Happening and Split. What amazing, amazing uh, film performances that you've gotten to, Thank you. to do. Thank and you. so that's just the film stuff. And this is a theater podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's, there was this uh, British journalist who was like giving me a, a rough time uh, a few weeks ago. You know, he was doing his favorite Broadway leading ladies and mm. saying that that I must have some kind of personality problem because I hadn't done as much musical theater as my talent deserved and i was like dude i was making movies i was doing television oh, yeah, and i've done 10, 10 broadway shows i mean what do you want you gotta you know? be cloned. Like, we want you we it was so that, weird you be demand that you weird. be cloned betty buckley we need clones of you so that you can keep doing all the things that everyone wants you to do but look let's thank let's, you i don't i don't know that who that guy was but let me i don't know you know for me as a musical theater aficionado and a fan of musical theater and someone who does it for a living. Um, I cannot think of anyone other than you from musical theater, actress extraordinaire or actor extraordinaire, however you want to uh, call the performers these days. But, you know, Cats, um, Triumph of Love, Hello Dog. I'm just going to throw it. 1776. I mean, I'm going all over the place here. But the reality is, I when I think of acting on the musical theater stage, I think of you with song. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. So let's Thank talk you. a bit about how you got your start. So just briefly, you know, was it something you always wanted to do out in Texas? Or did you have a mentor? Or, you know, was it, did you see something that, that you know, how, how did that start for you? Well, um, my mother had been a singer-dancer and I had I had three younger brothers, twin brothers who are three years younger than me, and my youngest brother, Norman, who uh, was eight years younger, and he's now a very successful television director. He has a series called Steel Magnolias. Um, I mean, sorry, Sweet Magnolias. That was number one on Netflix last season mm -hmm. and in the top ten mm -hmm. by the end of the year. And he's now in Georgia, Atlanta, shooting his second season of that wonderful show. And so uh, the two of us, you know, Norman was fascinated by film from the time he was really little. And um, I, my mother had all these amazing recordings of the great lady singers and all the major all the cast, al cast albums from all the Broadway shows. And so fortunately, that was just a part of my life. And I heard all that. And I learned to sing uh, with my dad playing the, this funky old guitar and teaching me South Dakota folk songs. And we also had an old rickety piano in our garage that he would play. He played guitar and uh, piano by ear. So technically, he, you know, taught me to sing, which was funny because late, years later he didn't want me to be a singer or a performer or an actress. Mm. He thought that was like not a legit profession. And so 
there were great wars between my father and my mother about that as my talent manifested itself. Mm-hmm. So I sang originally in the church choir and the youth choir and um, in the all-city chorus in elementary school. And I always had a difficult time blending in. My choir teacher was always, Betty Lynn, blend in, blend in, and she'd put me on the back row. And I was very confused as to why I wasn't blending in. I didn't mm-hmm. know because I was singing as soft as I could you know, with as straight a tone as I could sing. But I discovered over time, only in retrospect, that I had this kind of cutting edge to my voice. You know, there was a resonance to it that I, you know, uh, it was just natural to my my voice. Mm -hmm. And so when I was 11, my mother took me to see... um, a production at our regional theater Casa Manana in the and they had these series of summer musicals every year. She took me to see Pajama Game with the original Bob Fosse choreography. And I I remember having this transcendent moment you know which later I realized was an epiphany um, where this when I saw Steam Heat which is the classic Fosse with black suits, bow ties and derby hats and little flat dance shoes with a girl and two guys, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> and this like consciousness kind of rose up through my head and turned around and looked at, back at me. I remember the moment in detail. Mm. I remember what it looked like from my seat in the audience. I remember where my seat was. I remember everything about the moment and how euphoric I was and this awareness of that that is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And I was like, what is that? And then I realized, learned that it was the musical theater. So in our junior high talent show, every year there was a show at our junior high called The Monning Follies. And it was consisted basically of kids from every class, girls who would get together. And it was a very cliquish junior high. And I also went to this very cliquish high school. And let me just say, I was on the outside of the cliques. And um, <laughs> in, I was very short forever. Like I was this tiny person. And I didn't really grow till I was, my mother kept saying, that's okay, you'll grow, you'll grow. And I was like, Mm, I don't know. I think I'm gonna be little forever. So I was I was four feet eight, and then I grew to four feet eleven, and then I stayed that way for until I was like sixteen. The summer I turned sixteen, I suddenly had this huge growth spurt. But well, anyway, um, I had three friends: Ellen Wayman, who was um, a a painter, and Linda Clement, who was a uh, poet, and we had our legit blonde, beautiful girl, Carol Kleins, who we'd been friends since like elementary school or so. And she gave us legitimacy because she was so pretty. And so uh, that was my four little, you know, we were a group of four and, you know, we liked each other, but the rest of the school was this massive clique. And so I knew that I would not be invited to be a part of any of the dance routines that all the kids did all the girls did they would get together Mm -hmm. they would go to dance studios and learn a new dance thing it you know their various ages and basically it was all a demonstration of their pubescent bodies in these fancy glittery costumes (laughs) and you know because they weren't really dancers it was like pretty pretty funny and so I was like okay I'm gonna learn steam heat so I went home to my mother when I made this big decision and I said, mom, I want to learn steam heat. And she, it was really uncanny. She goes, oh, okay, Betty Lynn. Now I had studied dance with my aunt mm-hmm. who'd been a professional dancer and my mother, you know, had been a singer dancer. I'd studied with my aunt, Mary Ruth, 
who had danced in the original Casa Manana, and mm. you know, even she even went to Hollywood to dance in the golden age of the movie musicals. And my mother was sent to retrieve her and bring her home, <laughs> which I still think would be a great movie. I, I was like going to say mother. this story sounds like a great film. Yeah. Betty Bob going to get uh, sent to retrieve her older sister, Mary Ruth. And so Mary Ruth came back to Texas and opened a dance school. And I was one of her students from age three. And, you know, I remember dancing in her recitals and I loved my tap shoes, my mm. shiny tap shoes with the glittery bows. And I loved my outfits and I love my Blackbird costume and I love my rumba costume. And, you know, there's my mother has pictures of all that. So I'd been performing since I was pretty little right. and then singing church choir but there was nothing no awareness that what I my voice being unique at all I just was always singing and imitating mm. the girl singers the lady singers that my mom had these albums of and you know like imitating them is basically how I learned to to sing differently but so I um my mother said when I said I want to learn steam heat she said oh this is so interesting Betty Lynn because there was this ad in the Fort Worth newspaper today about Ed Holloman and Larry Howard opening their own dance school. And Ed Holloman was the choreographer of the production of Pajama Game. Oh, and Larry and Larry Howard was the lead dancer. And they both had danced in the Steam Heat number that I saw. Oh, wow. And they they were acolytes of Fosse. And they were tired of touring. They were tired of all the road life and everything. And they had, you know, done shows for him. And so they decided to settle in Ed's hometown uh, of uh, Fort Worth and open a school. And they had just opened the school. So when I realized I was going to learn Steam Heat, so my mom says, I'll call them because that's who these people are. They do show and I'm like okay so she got an appointment for me for a private lesson and I went in and I you know my mother called and said my daughter wants to learn steam heat and they're like well okay and you know like how old is she 11 you know so I was like okay so we had this appointment with them and I remember in detail, I went in and they said, well, can you sing? I said, yes. And they said, okay, sing this. I got steam heat. And I did, you know, and so they said, um, no, no, sing as loud as you can. You know, because I was doing my diminished thing, having mm. been taught that from the church choir and from, from the All City Chorus teacher. And she was quite a character too. I loved her, but she was scary. And so... Um, <laughs> So they said, sing as loud as you can. And so I said, okay. Now I knew I had a loud voice because everybody mm. told me that. So I went to the back of the room, turned around and sang as big as I can. And they jumped backwards, <laughs> which which was like my favorite thing, actually, in all my years of, of performance in youth. My youth was the power in my voice and how it could make people literally be shocked and jump backwards mm. or... In one case, I did an audition and the guy fell over backwards in his chair. It was really funny. <laughs> and so um, I, that was like my secret weapon, right? Mm, so I was yeah, like, for sure. okay. And so I sang it as big as I could. And they were like, oh, my God, you know. Mm. And they were like, yes, we'll teach you steam heat. And so they taught me the number and all the, you know, I started studying with them. I had private lessons to learn steam heat. And then I took their... I started studying with them tap, jazz, ballet, mm. and they were fantastic guys and just brilliant teachers because they were the real thing. You know, they were right. had been professional dancers. And, and they so, recognized they recognized your talent and what it was that that ability yeah, that you had. They they reflect and they taught me so much about mm. performance and. Mm. 
so they they choreographed the number my mother had this little tiny black suit made for me I remember I loved it so much and this little bow tie and we got a derby hat that fit me and little black tie shoes and they taught me the original hat tricks and everything you know straight from the show and it was like so cool I just thought it was the coolest (laughs) thing ever so I obviously I got in the show and they put me they put me in the 11 o'clock number position in front of the senior girls can can number and so I'll never forget the first moment I did it you know I went out and I did my number and the there was that moment when I finished well, you know, my last trick and yeah, you know, mm-hmm. did the number. The audience was in this stunned silence. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And, like there's this whole moment of suspended animation. Everybody's like stunned. And then they went crazy. Mm-hmm. They, like they gave this Didn't huge react. ovation. Wow. And I ran off stage and Mr. Bostwick, the principal, was off stage and he's like, he says, go back, go back for your bow. And so I was, I, I was running back. He, he tells me, that, or he told me for years that I said, boy, we're having fun tonight. And he sent me back out for my curtain call and I ran back out and took a second bow. And, and that was it. That was the beginning. So then my, my mother... Now, she wouldn't like it if I said this, but she was a stage mother, you know, and she mm-hmm. had me suddenly competing in all these kid talent shows and stuff, which I didn't like that. I didn't like the notion of competition among performers. Mm-hmm. And I could never understand how a singing and dancing kid like me was comparable to a kid playing um, an oboe and a ballerina from Nacogdoches who couldn't stay on point. You know, I was just, I couldn't understand how we were competitors. So that bothered me. Right, the sports aspect of it. You didn't want to compete with someone else. You just wanted to do your thing. Yeah, I just didn't understand how children and their talents compared Mm. and how you could say this one was better than that one. Yeah. we were all just out there doing our thing, you know. It just it bothered me. Then they entered me in the Miss Teenage pageant, and I really didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And I was runner up to it. Now, the funny thing is, my dad approved of beauty pageants, which I didn't understand. I thought there was great hypocrisy in that. Hmm. And then when I was so, by the time I was fifteen, by the time I was fourteen, whenever my mother would like take me off to some talent show I would get sleepy whenever she'd grab my arm I would be like oh I'm so sleepy and one day I went in and before we were supposed to leave for a talent show and I washed my hair at the last moment and I have this kind of wavy wild hair anyway and I came back out of the shower and she's like what have you done and I'm like well, I washed my hair and she said, but we're leaving now. You know, your hair looks terrible. And I was like, okay, don't be mad. Don't be mad. So I went and I grabbed the vacuum cleaner because you could reverse the flow of the vacuum cleaner because we didn't have a hair dryer. And I, I blew my hair out, wow. which just was like this, like hurricane. And then my hair was like standing out all over my head, like this wild thing, you know? Mm. And my mother was like, oh my God, Betty Lynn. She was so upset. I'll never forget that. Anyway, um, so I I did. I performed, like, after Seam Heat, she and the Holloman and Howard would put together a new number for me every year for me to do um, in high school, mm-hmm. at the high school talent show. And some of that was kind of, was fun, and some of it was kind of usurped by her ideas of what I should do instead of the funky uh, way I came into the performance thing with Steam Heat, which that appealed to my aesthetic, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the fun aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 
so when I was 18, I was recruited for the Miss Texas pageant because I was the girl singer in town that year. Mm-hmm. And I won that. And then I, in the, I competed in the Miss Texas pageant and I didn't, I was, uh, I, the producer of the pageant had, he thought, and, uh, Miss America, Maria Bill Fletcher, previous Miss America was there and they all thought that I would be the next, next Miss Texas, but I wasn't, and I was a runner up. And so they invited me because of my talent to be a guest entertainer the following year at the Miss America pageant. Mm-hmm. And basically it was the first time a local pageant winner who wasn't what they call this queen or a former Miss America right. was invited to perform on the Miss America telecast. And, you know, to they used to have... Mm-hmm. Four performers, uh, along with the choreographer, who was a wonderful dancer, um, do these numbers between the various competitions, the talent, the evening gown, the swimsuit competition for the evening with, you know, Burt Parks and seeing and stuff um, to tie the theme of the show together. Mm. So I I was invited to be one of those performers representing all of the losers in America (laughs) who never make it to Atlantic City, (laughs) which was... Which oh really gosh. appealed to me, that title. I was like, yes, I represent the losers. Excellent. This is perfect. Right? So oh so gosh. then I was on this major TV show, right? Mm-hmm. And so w- there was an agent who was the friend of uh, one of the ladies can, that was involved with the pageant. And she called him and said, watch the squirrel perform. And he did. And they called, he and his uh, boss, the agent, asked me to fly to New York right from Atlantic City to audition for the agency that is now ICM. It was then called mm-hmm. Ashley Famous. And so I went to New York with my mother and I sang for this room of like 12 agents and this very famous celebrity agent named Eric Shepard jumped up and said, sign her and left the room. And so they, they signed me. And so I had this wonderful guy named Roger Hess, who was my responsible agent. And he kept trying to get me to come to New York, but I went on a USO tour with Miss America the summer after I graduated from college. Mm. He told me, you know, go finish school and, you know, when you come back, when, you, when you're ready, come to New York and we'll, we'll, we'll start representing you and, you know, sending you out on stuff. And so um, I went with her, with Miss America and six girls on a USO tour to Korea and Japan. We were supposed to go to Vietnam mm. in the summer of 1968. Mm. And uh, some performers were killed uh, on right before we left so they detoured us mm-hmm. to all of the military hospitals in Japan and all of the military bases in Korea so we went on that tour and at 21 Miss America and one other girl in the troupe uh, Charlotte Sims who's now Charlotte Olin, uh she was Miss Minnesota we went into the uh, intensive care unit so I saw firsthand the results of war when I was 21 oh wow and my life vision changed. It was mm. altered completely. And when I came back, I was also had just experienced my first love uh, affair and was heartbroken. It mm. was with a Dallas Cowboy quarterback, a uh, second string quarterback who uh, like totally, uh, you know, spent six months trying to woo me. And then because he was this glamorous guy that played for the Dallas Cowboys, my parents virtually handed me over to him. And he turned out to be a an unbelievable mm. uh, messed up guy that was really mm. a cad and Jeez. I should have never had anything to do with him. Mm. But that broke my heart. And then this like experience mm. on the USO tour confused the hell out of me. And so when I came back 
to Fort Worth, I was really experiencing PTSD, but didn't have words for didn't that. And yeah. so I said, wow. you know, my agent called and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to stay in Fort Worth. I'm going to go to work on the newspaper here because I was a journalism major to please my father. I'd gone to TCU on a journalism scholarship. What I left out in this long story is that uh, from age, I made my professional debut at 15 as Dainty June and Gypsy, and I danced in West Side Story that summer. And then every summer after that, I would do a show at Casa Manana. I played Ado Annie. I was going to ask about Casa Manana, because I knew that was a big part of of, of your start there. Yeah, so I played Ado Annie in Oklahoma. I played Maisie in The Boyfriend. I played Meg in Brigadoon in college. I played Susan in The Desert Song. I played Mrs. Antrobus my senior year at TCU. And uh, what happened was the head of the theater program at TCU had known my mother in college, and he recognized that I had this uh, fraught family... uh, uh, conflict about my talent. So he arranged for me to have a theater minor at TCU because my mm-hmm. dad insisted on me being a journalism major. And so he then, p- excuse me, picked a project I could do every year at TCU. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of performing experience by the time I, I finally got to New York. So after this like period of months of confusion and PTSD from that trip, um, my friend Roger Hess who is my responsible agent, called and said, I'm bringing an industrial show to Dallas, Texas. You and your mother come over and see the show. And let's talk about our, you know, our getting you to New York. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to do that. And he's, he's like, because I have a job at the newspaper and blah, blah, blah. I was a writer. And so um, we went to see this show starring Flip Wilson and a band called Your Father's Mustache. And so the (laughs) band introduced, brought me up from the audience and had me sing with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sang You Made Me Love You because that was the only song I could think I knew the key in that I sang in. Mm-hmm. And the audience loved it. So then the buyer was in the audience. They're like, oh, let's do that. Let's put her Let's put her in the show. We'll like fly her to these cities and then we'll bring her up like she's a local girl in each city. So they offered me a lot of money and I was like, oh, great. This is mm-hmm. more than I make at the newspaper. And my dad couldn't deny that. So... Mm-hmm. Um, we went to Atlanta, we went to Chicago, wow. we went to San Francisco, and that was just on the weekends, so I could keep my job at the newspaper. And the last stop was Philadelphia. And so then Roger called and said, look, you're in Philadelphia, train it into New York, I've got another industrial show for you at Gimbel's department store for six weeks, and we'll see how everything goes, and if it doesn't work out, you go home, but you know, if stuff happens, then you'll stay. And I'm like, Dad, can I do that? And he's like, okay, you know, reluctantly. So I trained it in from Philadelphia, moved into the Barbizon Hotel for Women. I had my little dog with me. And I snuck him into the, the, the hotel. I had a little skinny leather jacket. I was freezing cold. Mm. And I called the agent and I said, because I didn't know how to dress for cold weather or anything. I, sure. It was from Texas. This is before climate change. And so... I called Roger and I said, I'm in town. And he goes, good, you have an audition in 15 minutes at the American Theater Laboratory. Take your music, get in a cab and go. Mm. He didn't even have time to tell me what it was for. So I went zooming down to the American Theater Laboratory where they were auditioning for 1776. And um, this is my first day in the city. I just arrived. And so I went in and there were like 
10 or 11 people sitting at this table, you know, this table looking very important. And what had happened was they had been in rehearsal for a period of time and they had cast a classic soprano in the role of Martha Jefferson. And that section of the show wasn't working, but they didn't know why and they didn't know how to fix it. So they decided to recast. Mm -hmm. And so they were auditioning everybody again. In fact, right before I went in, this beautiful girl comes walking out and in her mini skirt because it was like 1969, you know, mm-hmm. and um, she, you know, it was all go-go clothes and stuff, yeah. and she had a short mini skirt and high boots, and she was adorable with this red curly hair, and I was like, oh my God, that's a New York actress. I look at her, you know, I want to be like her, and it was it was Donna McKechnie, you know, and so oh, wow. um, it was so wild, and her boyfriend was Ken Howard, who played. Um, oh right. Thomas Jefferson. Yes. So I went in and I sang for them uh, this my pageant song, which was Rose of Washington Square. <laughs> but it had a real kick-ass arrangement. And, oh, you know, it was very belty. And they were like, oh, my God, who are you? And I was like, Betty Lynn Buckley. And they said, where are you from? I said, Fort Worth, Texas. And they said, when did you get to town? And I said, today. And they said, today? Oh, my God, it's like a movie. It's like a movie. So then they, they uh, kept me there for two hours, and they taught me the song. And they and they laughed and laughed because I sang the song. I was like, um, oh, he never speaks his passion. He never speaks his views, whereas other men speak volumes. Uh, and I said it in Texas accent, volumes. volumes? And they're like, no, no, it's volumes. And, uh, and, and then I was like, he plays the violin. And he tucks it right under his chin. And he bows. Oh, he bows. And they're like, no, no, it's bows. Get it? It's a violin. And I'm like, oh, oh, sorry. And so then they, they taught me. They had me learn the scene and oh, come cool. in and read for them. And so I read for them. And the, while I was, you know, looking at the script, uh, the or learning the scene independent of the script, the stage manager was this great guy named Peter Stern. And he comes over and he says, you know, do you know what you're auditioning for? And I said, no. And he said, this is 1776. It's a big new musical. And if you get this role, you're the luckiest little girl I've ever met. And I said, oh, cool. You know, that's nice. And so I went in and I sang. And then, you know, they then were very intrigued that I could sing the song in a bunch of different keys. And they, they had their options about what sound they wanted. I could sing it as just this big brassy belt or I could sing it in the mixed place it ultimately was in or as a soprano and they were like oh this is nice you know and I was mm. like that's good I'm glad you're happy and there and then I did the scene and they were like okay you'll hear from us so I went back to my little hotel and or the Barbizon for women and I called my agent and I said you know I think something cool is ha- happening then I called my mother and my said mother I think something great's about to happen and by the next morning I was in the costume fitting and in rehearsal that's amazing like well this whole wild. Setup, this whole setup that you made for this for this 1776 is so important because only thing I had ever heard was Betty Buckley got to New York the same day she got to New York she auditioned for 1776 and got the part. And I thought to myself, there's got to be something more behind this, right? Which yeah. is all those years that you just explained of Casa Manana, all the, the from everything, yeah. from all, everything led up until this moment. And that's the thing people forget. Yeah, I had a lot of performing experience by the time I got to New York. And right. I had been trained by really great professional teachers that were, Amazing. you know, had been professional uh, artists in the musical theater mm-hmm. and performers and dancers. And, you know, they were great. Those guys had me so ready. That's great. So, and, you do, you know, so you do 1776. You're in there with Ken Howard. You're learning, you know, uh, it's your first 
Broadway show. Um, and Howard De Silva was the star, and course. William Daniels was the star, and Thank Paul you. Hecht played Dickinson. And those guys, like they, they, they were like my my uncles. You know, mm-hmm. they all were like worried because I didn't know how to dress for cold weather. They taught me how to do that. They taught me everything. Right. And it, and they told me, you know, they sat me down and said, "This is what you're good at. This is what your talent is, and here's where you need to go to school now and study." And so I did everything they told me to do. Wow. So that was really the beginning of your real uh, New York uh, learning, you know, t- training there in, in, in the city. And I remember seeing a photo of you, black and white photo of you with a horse in New York City, like looking at a horse or petting a horse. And 17, yeah. in the 1776 marquee of the theater yeah. behind you. And I thought, this is such a great, uh, all encompassing Betty Buckley photo, right? So it's like. It, it really is. I love that picture. I wish Texas, I had a copy of it. Uh, yeah, you should get Texas, the Texas gal, you know, with her horse and yeah. the Broadway show so, that she's in. <laughs> yeah, I had a horse. My father got me a horse when I was 10 because he I was so relentless in my begging. And mm. and then um, he passed away. That horse passed away when I was 12. My father basically rescued him from a glue factory or something. Mm. And mm-hmm. and he But he was a good learning horse for oh. a kid, you know, and yeah. his name was Blaze. And then he passed away. And then I got my competitive horse when I was 12. His name was Black Bucket. He was an amazing horse. And I competed in junior horse shows and rodeos and stuff. And so my other big dream was to ride horses and especially cutting horses. And I told my horse Bucket when I left for New York, I was like, Bucket, you know, hang tight, man. I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to be successful in show business. And I'm going to buy a ranch and I'm going to come back and get you. Don't worry. And he waited for me till he was 33 years old. Oh, my gosh. And, and my parents you know would loan him mm. i kept paying for his upkeep all those years mm. and my parents would loan him to little families with little girls learning to ride and stuff like that and then finally we put him out to pasture at this place and my uncle called me i remember and said you know bucket is much older now he was 33 and mm. he said you need to come visit him and i was like oh I've, i'm so, yeah and so i came home and i went to see him and he was so annoyed with me when mm. I came in, like, and I just, and he turned his back on me. I was like, Bucket, I'm so sorry, man. I've just been really busy and, you know, I didn't get the ranch and I know you've waited for me and, you know, if, if you need to go, it's okay, you know. And, and so I hung out with him that afternoon and walked around the pasture with him and and then I left and a couple of days later he laid down and died, I was told, and it was very sad. Well, Betty, now you're um, making me cry. <laughs> yeah, it made me cry. Oh. And so when after 9-11, mm-hmm. I was like, I forgot to get my ranch, you know, because after ever we were all like so shocked by 9-11. And well, sure. I know yeah. a lot of people that it was a dramatic life change Shift. at that moment. And I was in New York when that happened. Mm-hmm. And so I became obsessed over the next several months with finding my cutting horse. And I was very fortunate and connected with one of the top trainers in the sport. And I was 55 and I said, is it, am I too, is it too late for me to learn this? Mm. He goes, no, no, because you rode when you were a kid. I can, you know, I can teach you to do this and I'll help you get a really good competitive horse. And I'm like, he said, I'll take you on as a student. And he was like amazing teacher and wonderful trainer. Mm. He found me this great horse named Purple Badger. And mm. I was commuting for like the first year. And then I realized I needed to live where my horse lived. So I, the next day I put my apartment on the market. In the meantime, I'd been shopping for properties and I found this beautiful place that was and I moved here 2002 end of 2002 I think Mm -hmm. um or 18 years ago and it was um 
it was a, the best thing I've ever done, you know, because mm. before that, everything I did was just study, 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 practice, 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 be ready for the next job, study, 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 sure. practice, yeah. practice, practice, be ready for the next job, do the job, practice, 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 study, study, <laughs> study. And that was my life. And then, you know, and then after I changed everything in, in 18 years ago, I was like, you know, now my work supports this. And right. it's like, this is my life and the work supports, supports this. That. So you really, I never really thought of you, you know, honestly, as a traditional Broadway musical theater star. Cause that, and you've just explained why you're not. I mean, you are much more than that to me. Uh, there's a full range to your experience and breadth, whether it's your involvement in politics and your interest in, in the, the well-being of this country that you can follow if you look on social media or, or just from listening to you in interviews and, and, and you're sharing your, your, your honest clear views um you know and also just th i think this comes through in the way you perform on stage and it's a big part of what you know there's a steely directness betty to your voice thank you and then thank it's, you. A, it's a, but there's a vulnerability underneath it's that vulnerability underneath your voice that steely directness the combination of that that makes it so unique you know so from 1776 i mean there's a lot going on there after that but can you talk a bit about your um, how cats came about for you and the song memory, which I think will forever be um, identified in the United States, at least with you. Um, uh, and 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 tell us about you know I was talking to Ken Page a few a few months ago and he told me he was brought in very last oh, minute. Oh, you love Ken Page? Uh, he's so he's wonderful. fantastic. And so he said I was yeah. brought in very last minute, but talk to Betty. He said if you get to talk to Betty, talk to her about her experience because for her it, it was a, a a journey. So apparently that was yeah. a journey to get to that to Grizabella, and yet it turned out to be your Tony Award winning uh, role, right? Um, well, I had been doing this TV show for four years in uh, California, and to be honest, actually honest, you know, I'm, those sh I did the film Carrie for Brian De Palma, which was a blast, and mm -hmm. he was great, and I was that was a gift. That was like my feature film debut, and from that film, the uh, Brandon Tartikoff, who became the head of NBC, mm -hmm. at that point was Fred Silverman's assistant at ABC, and he was... The wonderful Diana Highland had passed away on this hit TV show uh, that they had called uh, Eight is Enough and with Dick Van Patten and these wonderful uh, young people. I had that and, same haircut as the young boy. That's how my mom yeah. had my haircut. She's like, you're going to look just like this kid. I thought, oh, God. Like Adam Rich. Adam Rich. He's, he's great. And he yeah. and I are pals and oh. still. And I love the guy. And I love all those kids. And mm -hmm. I mean, not kids. And we're all older people now. But um, <laughs> so... Um, what happened was they, they, Brandon told everybody at Lorimar, they were like, Lorimar Productions did mm -hmm. Eight is Enough. And this was, we were their second show. The Waltons was their first show. And it was a hit. And they had done six episodes. And Dinah Highland passed away from cancer, which was a horrible, you know, terrible mm -hmm. loss. And But the show was this enormous hit. So they decided, okay, we need somebody who will, be a stepmother figure mm. and so then they started auditioning and film uh doing film uh, tests a uh, screen tests for a new actress and so brandon thought that the character i played in carrie miss collins was the perfect prototype for this stepmother person who was originally named mitch and mm. then they changed her name at the last minute to 
Sandra Sue Abbott and then call her Abby. And so I, I never got the logic of all that. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, they flew me out to do a screen test. And apparently I didn't do well in the screen test. They, then they flew me back to New York. And But Tartikoff really believed because of, of my work in Carrie that I was right for it and that I was capable of it. So they flew me back a second time and they hired their best director, who was this wonderful man named Harry Harris. Hmm. I love that guy. And he directed my screen test, my second test. And then I got cast. But I had just been signed by this agency because of my work in Carrie. And they were, I won't say who they were, but they were pretty flimsy. And um, hmm. they didn't really didn't represent me well sure. but it still seemed like a lot of money to me like way more than you know I was paid on Broadway right and I I had been doing Pippin on Broadway mm. for quite some time to uh I replaced Jill Clayburgh in that show she left after six months and the wonderful Michael Rupert who we spoke to a couple of months ago as well who who definitely had a blast um being yeah. in Pippin with you he came in later after yes. I had gone in, and I I love that guy. He's he's was amazing. In fact, we also did a show together called Elegies, a beautiful by, William Finn. Show. Uh, by William Finn, yes. and yeah, he Michael Rupert is a great person and um, a lovely, lovely man. And yeah, so I have I've been fortunate to work with him a couple of times. So you're and, doing um, Pippin, and you had you had replaced Joe Kleber in Pippin, and so how was how was yeah, that? and I stayed in Pippin for a long time to pay for my acting classes and my therapy because I was bound and determined to become this like really good actress. I think and of I, that you know, song, I, was, I guess um, I guess I'll miss the man. I think of, even though it's not written for you, I think of it as a quintessence, like a Betty Buckley song. In the thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> anyway, I so I, I needed to stay in the show for a long time because mm -hmm. I wasn't making that much money and it was, mm -hmm. you know, paying my rent and paying for my therapy and paying for my acting classes. And so then from that that. I met Brian De Palma at an audition, and then he decided he was going to direct Carrie, and then he used me to do minor voices in a bunch of his movies, or several of them, mm. and then I realized that any one of those parts would be a great film debut for any young actress who was trying to learn her craft, and I confronted him about that and told him I wouldn't do those voices anymore because those would be parts that he should hire an actor for, not a local person, and then bring an actor in to do a voice, you know, to mm. create a performance. Interesting. So hmm. I guess he respected that, and then he, he called me and said, you know, read the book Carrie, and uh, I did, and he said, this is going to be my next film, and then a few months later he sent me the script, and he'd created this beautiful film debut for me with Miss Collins, and so I was, you know, I remember when I read that script, I just cried because I realized the, the incredible gift that that, that was. Mm. And so the film itself was just so much fun to do. And so, so from that and from the heady success of Carrie, this agency signed me to represent me in film. And they kind of sold me out to the circumstance in um, Eight is Enough. And Eight is Enough was produced by Lorimar and was... Uh, they were a company and they liked to brag that they were owned by the mob. And that was an endeavor to intimidate you into doing, into behaving like right. little robots. And mm. the mistake they made with me or whatever, and it was my first time in Hollywood and learning about Hollywood, how Hollywood functions, you mm. know, 
and it's very patriarchal and it was they were cruel those guys mm. they were cruel they were mean mm. they were and they and I really didn't like them at all mm. yeah. and I'm from Texas you know and mm. so and I was raised to be outspoken and yeah. you, you met my directness you know and they didn't like that either and I didn't care at that point and so <laughs> um I I ended up having to hire a major attorney mm. um who you know, saw me through those four years, but I kept thinking, what have I done? You know, because all I wanted to do was to sing in the musical theater and perform, and I wanted to be a dramatic actress who could tell authentic stories in the context of the musical theater. That was my goal. And so I was flying back to New York every six weeks for my voice lessons, and I remember there was this producer named Greg who had sleek black hair and only wore black clothes and he drove a black Porsche and I I was so determined not to have these people own me that I drove a Bundy Rentarec and my cast and everybody was so ashamed of my Bundy Rentarec outside the sound stage at Warner Brothers you know they were like you've yeah. got to buy a car Betty and I was like I like my Bundy it's Rentarec. It's such an LA because, status symbol right the car is the- Well because yeah because when you have a funky car that's all dented up people are like she has nothing to lose and they move over right so <laughs> right, they just let you have you your safer. way on the you road yeah so i loved my car but they were like no you have to buy a car yeah. and so i remember one day i was in getting in my car to drive to the la la airport to fly to new york for my voice lesson and he goes where are you he drives by in his black porsche and he he's like where are you going, Betty? And I said, I'm going to New York. And he goes, why? And I said, for my voice lesson. And he said, you have such delusions of grandeur. You will be lucky if you play American mothers for the rest of your life. And I said, we'll see, Greg, we'll see. And <laughs> then there was music, dramatic music underscore. Uh, I wow. just love that moment. Oh, and I, for years that. after that, like, because... After It Is Enough, I played a cat. I played um, a, an alcoholic country western singer in yeah. Tender Mercies. Yes, in Edwin Drood, I played um, um, a you know pr- British music hall performer mm-hmm. who was a male impersonator, mm-hmm. and I played an old man yes. and a young man in that show. So for all these years of collecting all the various <laughs> wonderful roles I've been privileged to play, You're I always think Greg of Greg, and I still like I. I fantasize about the day that I run into him again, and I say, "See, Greg, see." Told you so. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Well, whatever it takes, right? Oh, he never speaks his passions. He never speaks his views. Whereas other men speak volumes, the man I love is mute. In truth, I can't recall being wooed with. At all, even now, he plays the violin, he tucks it right under his chin, and he bows, oh, he bows, for he knows, yes, he knows that it's hard. I had such a great time talking with Betty Buckley that we decided to make it a two-part episode. So stay tuned for more next week as Betty shares her experiences working on Cats and in the cult musical Carrie on Broadway. 
Be ready for a ton of inside stories, some great laughs, and that direct, honest approach that is quintessential Betty Buckley. Thank you for listening to the American Theatre Artists Online podcast. This episode was edited by Zach Walsh. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the Actors Fund today. Just go to actorsfund.org and press donate. If you'd like to share your feedback or send us comments, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at American Theatre Artists Online.